We are going through uh, just the major concepts in the book that I wrote called The Fifth Way, which is a, a look at the journey to the journey. What does it look like for a modern Westerner to be able to start to understand the ancient Eastern mindset from which our scriptures come? Uh, this was my journey starting 25 years ago or so uh, when... Christianity, as it was being taught to me, portrayed to me, wasn't making a whole lot of sense. I wasn't sure if I could really follow that faith and follow Jesus if it was the way that it was being shown to me. And so I launched into a course of study that uh, brought me face to face with a Jesus I'd never met before. And I've been transformed by that experience ever since. That's the Jesus that we try to show and portray and live here at the effect every single day. But it was mind-bending and wrenching to go through that switch in worldview. And so we've been talking about the concepts and the way that it works as we try to get in touch with this Eastern and ancient Jesus who speaks to us out of a language and out of a worldview so different than our own. In the 2nd, 3rd century B.C., there was a Chinese philosopher, and his name was Chuang Tzu. And uh, he tells this wonderful story of the autumn floods in his district in China, where at a certain time of year, the floods come, and all of the rains just pour down the springs and the tributaries into the river, and the river swells its banks, and the banks get so wide that from one side you can't tell a horse from a cow on the other side, is the way he puts it. It's a wonderful visual there. And he says that the spirit of the river who's flowing down with uh, all of this water just laughs for joy and he's swelling inside himself because he's thinking that no one is greater than he is and that all the world is being gathered into himself as he flows down the stream until he hits the ocean. And he looks out and he sees the limitless waves and the horizon and he just sinks inside and he realizes what a fool he's been to think he was all that when he comes face to face with something so much greater than himself. And he cries out, and then the spirit of the ocean speaks to him, and they enter into this wonderful dialogue. And right at the beginning, the spirit of the ocean says to the river, and you can read along in your, uh, in your bulletins if you want to, he says, you cannot speak of ocean to a well frog, the creature of a narrower sphere. And you cannot speak of ice to a summer insect, the creature of a single season. But he tells the spirit of the river, now that you have come out, you've broken through this narrow sphere, this, this little myopic slice of who you thought you were and what you thought the world was all about. He says, now I can speak to you of great things. And in this one beautiful passage, he talks about the fact that dimensions are limitless, that time is endless, that conditions are not invariable and that terms are not final. And he's trying to get the spirit of the river to understand there's so much more here than you can comprehend. And he does it in this beautiful way where he's really trying to get him to stop judging. Does that sound familiar? Jesus is trying to get us to stop judging because the standards that we use to judge limit us. They fix us in this one small space. The spirit of the river had been fixed in this one small space. He thought the banks of his own course were all that there really was in the world and didn't know that there was something larger. 
And so when he gets out to the, the ocean and he's trying to make judgments between what is great and what is small and the spirit of the ocean says dimensions are limitless. Great and small doesn't have any kind of relevance, any kind of meaning in the face of something that's limitless. When he's trying to judge between past and future, when we try to judge between past and future and we're looking at the regrets of the past and the worries of the future and then the spirit of the ocean says, yes, but time is endless. What does all that mean and what relevance does it have in the face of endless time? When we judge ourselves in terms of our successes and our failures and we think that we are fixed in that reality, whatever it is, and then spirit comes and tells us that conditions are not invariable. Things change. It's like we were saying this morning, in God's presence, everything is made new. And truly, any failure is just the beginning of the next success, if we learn from it. And when we are looking at our own death and fearing the end of everything that we think we know, and then we hear that terms are not final, that there's something always beyond any ending is just the next beginning. What is going on here is that the spirit of the ocean is trying to get the spirit of the river to change his worldview, to see life from a different perspective, to open up and realize that this much of what he saw was just a fraction. And, and if that curtain can just be parted for an instant and you can see that vista out there. You're forever changed because you know that there's something out there, a there out there that you hadn't considered before. And so our concept of reality is the same way. We all have what is called a worldview. We all have a concept of what reality really is. But we're limited by it. And the truth of the matter is that not any one of us really experiences reality directly. We experience it through one of two filters. The first is the filter of our senses. Think of it. We really go through life the way a video game player goes through the virtual reality of his world, through the interface, through the software. Our senses are receptors. They pick up sight and sound and touch and smell and all those things, and they send electrical impulses to our brain. Our brain doesn't know the difference, whether those impulses are coming from the outside world or whether they're coming from just another part of our brain, right? That's why dreams are just as real as waking reality. The brain literally doesn't know the difference. Once it's reduced to electrical signals, you know, it could be coming from anywhere. There are people who cultivate doing lucid dreams. Lucid dreams are dreams in which you wake up just enough to know that you're dreaming, but not enough to actually wake from the dream. So once you realize you're in a dream and you're dreaming, you can make different decisions. You can change the dream. You can take little vacations in your dream time if you want to. Or more importantly, when that monster is chasing you and chasing you and chasing you, you can stop and turn and face it and it just fades to white because there's nothing in the dream that can hurt you unless you believe it can. How do you get to become a lucid dreamer? How do you train yourself to have lucid dreams? See, this is another thing that I did for a while there. I was into everything at one point or another. <sighs> another story. The way you do it is you constantly question your state of awareness during your waking day. You know, I'd be sitting here right now thinking, am I asleep or am I awake? And I'd be looking all at you. Now, if I was sitting here looking at all at you and we were in the living room of the house that I grew up in, then I'd start to have a clue. Okay, I might be dreaming. 
you know? Or if these walls were painted some zebra pattern, you know? That's what you do. You look for cues and clues, uh, colors and perspective that's off, juxtaposition of things that couldn't possibly be. And when you suspect you're dreaming, then there's a series of things you can do to test it and to wake up inside the dream. What works within the dream state, and why I love this analogy so much, is exactly what happens in the waking state. If we aren't questioning the state of our reality, if we're awake or if we're asleep, more importantly, are we aware? Are we present? Or are we off in our heads someplace, past and future, worrying abstractly about things that are not here and now? And so the senses are that first filter And if we can use our presence, use our mindfulness, we can move into the moment and we can connect in a way that is much deeper. You know what Buddha means? It means one who has awoken. He woke up inside his moments. Jesus always was saying, whoever has ears, let them hear. Remember that saying? He says it over and over and over again. He's trying to get us to wake up. If you have ears, hear this. Understand what's going on here. He's trying to get us to wake up, wake out of this lethargy, wake out of just living through our moments pre-programmed without any sort of awareness or possible choice that we can make in the moments. But that, again, is only the first filter. The second filter is something that I just want to read a little bit from the fifth way and see if this makes sense to you. Most of us are quite content to let dreams be dreams. And life can be lived quite fully while taking our state of consciousness at face value. But our senses are only the first of two filters that separate us from true reality. The senses convert external stimuli into electrical impulses and send them to the brain. But the brain has to interpret those impulses into meaningful bits of information. How does it do that? How does the brain know what red is or what wet means? How does the brain tell us that we like the chemical composition of donuts and hate that of broccoli? How do we decide one face is beautiful and another is not, or know in a glance that this person is angry or that person is in love? The brain's ability to interpret information can't be separated from our ability to think. And our ability to think can't be separated from the sum of our knowledge and experience. In other words, everything around us, everything we've ever seen, heard, learned, and lived through has shaped and is shaping the way we interpret everything around us, everything we see, hear, learn, and live through. It's a closed loop, circular logic, like using a word in its own definition. Our current understanding of life and reality is the second filter, the dictionary through which we understand life and reality as it plays out before us. This is the well that Chuang Tzu speaks of, and like it or not, we're all well frogs, obliviously swimming and swimming and croaking within the confines of the view we hold of the world around us, our worldview. And since the worldview that each of us holds is the very definition of reality itself, we can't directly separate it from our interpretation of reality. We don't see it as a point of view. It's just the way things are. It's the very ground on which we walk, the air we breathe, and so it forms the perfect prison a prison with invisible walls, a prison that gives the illusion of freedom, a prison from which no escape seems necessary. The hardest thing you'll ever do is change your worldview. The second hardest thing 
is realizing that you have one. See, that's the key. We don't think we have a worldview. We think we've got reality wired and figured out. We're living it as if that's the well. Until some moments in our lives when we hit that limitless ocean and suddenly everything is shattered. Will we take that moment to break through into a new reality, a new worldview, or will we shrink back, double down, and build our walls thicker? The second filter here is the worldview. It's that sum of all the knowledge and everything that we have interpreted. And it's shaped by both personal and collective experience. You know, we've been reading um, Richard Rohr. We've been going through all of these things and trying to understand about this Western worldview and try to understand how this works. The personal experience, of course, is everything that we have experienced ourselves in our family, in our lives, all the hurts and traumas. And in fact, we are shaped much more, our worldview is shaped much more by the hurts and traumas that we experience in life rather than the love and the care. Because the hurts and the trauma force us to come up with survival techniques and things that stay with us so much longer. So all that personal experience is part of it. But then there's collective experience, things we don't experience directly, but are taught to us by family, taught to us by the institutions in in our lives, the churches, the schools, the media, all of this. And then it goes even deeper than that. Because how is our society and how is our very culture acculturated? The historical worldview of Western civilization is also a backdrop to everything that our culture does, everything our institutions do, everything our families do to create that collective experience that is gifted to us, quote unquote, and added to that which we experience on our own. All of this together creates the worldview and it can't be separated. We are modern Westerners. We are the children of Greek philosophy and Roman law and that's the way it is. That is who we are. And it's not so much about saying that we need to change our worldview, but we want to gain dual citizenship with another worldview. You know, we're in a kind of a current crisis if you think about it there's a cultural war going on are y'all aware of that you know the united states and really the western world is in crisis you know what that crisis is it's the worldview that the western world has lived with and built for the last 500 years is deconstructing it's falling apart it doesn't hold water anymore it's not being accepted by more and more of a majority of people and the underlying judeo-christian values that were the foundation for this worldview are crumbling as well. The church is in transition. Governments are in transition. Society is in media and mores, all in transition. The reason that we feel this angst and this crisis and this fear about where we're going is because everything that we think we know about reality is changing. It just doesn't work anymore. And that creates a lot of stress. And that stress is not only personal, but collective. So it adds to it. And so this is what's going on. Now, what is this Western worldview that I keep talking about here? Well, the best way to understand the Western worldview is to contrast it with an Eastern worldview because uh, that's the best way to kind of see the differences. So I want to read another passage. Just bear with me here because I think this will do the best job of trying to get this across to you. In the most general terms, 
There are two basic worldviews humankind has produced. We call them Eastern and Western, Oriental and Occidental. And like sunrise and sunset, there almost had to be just two, as they represent the two basic ways in which each of us as a person approaches the intuitive, intellectual, feeling, thinking, right brain, left brain. You get that? And just as the sun rises first in the east and then sets in the west, we begin our lives as children in the east of our intuition and grow toward the west of our intellect, always remaining a mix of the two, but one predominates. As it is with each of us as individuals, so it has been with the civilizations we have created. Our most ancient civilizations, those of China and India, Mesopotamia and Egypt, rose with the sun in the near and far east, and with them rose the eastern worldview, the older of the two, presiding over our infancy as a civilized race. And those most ancient civilizations, characterized by their worldviews, were not considered eastern at the time. They were just all there was until there was something with which to contrast. The ancient Greeks are credited with taking a decidedly westward turn in the first millennium BCE and through the philosophy of Heraclitus, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle and their attendant schools of thought formed a very different way of looking at life, nature, religion, science, art, politics, language. It was a new theory of everything that contrasted sharply with Eastern thought forms. Again, generally, where the East saw the universe God and man as a unified whole, the West saw them as duality, distinct parts in opposition to each other, good and evil, body and spirit, light and dark. And so where the East saw nature as an organic body living and growing around us, the West saw it more as a machine, a mechanism that could be reduced to and understood as individual moving parts. Where the East saw the community, the group, as the basic unit of society and the individual as existing to serve the community, the West saw the individual, the individual as the basic unit, with the community existing to serve and protect the rights of the individual. This Western focus on individualism extended into the afterlife, where individuality was immortalized in contrast to Eastern thought, which tends to see individuality dissolving as a drop returning to the sea of unity. The West tends to see time as a line segment with a beginning and an end, while the East sees it as a circle, a snake eating its tail, symbolizing the merging of beginning and end and the unity of all time. These Western concepts of the basic nature of reality, duality, reductionism, individualism, linear time, all gave rise to a very different worldview, which gave rise to a very different culture, containing very different religious and scientific, legal and political systems. These systems all turned out to be very good at describing the mechanics of the physical universe, manipulating and harnessing the power of the physical world and creating new technologies through applied sciences. But though the Western worldview tends to be very good at understanding and manipulating the physical world, it's not very good at understanding and following the world of spirit. Here, the Eastern worldview, with its emphasis on unity, community, a cyclic concept of time, is much better suited to bring us into heightened spiritual awareness, which is exactly why Yeshua told us we must become like children, recapture the worldview of our intuitive youth, 
if we want to enter kingdom. I know that was a lot, but I hope it helps to start get the contrast between the two. It's no wonder that now the Western worldview is taking over the entire globe. Eastern cultures are becoming more and more westernized because they need to get technologized. They need to be able to harness the power of the physical world. And so they're becoming more and more Western, overlying their Eastern worldview and thought forms. So while the West, again, is the best at describing the physical, the East, the spiritual, That's why the West has produced so many fine scientists, but so few real, true spiritual masters. And here's the interesting thing. When a a Western person becomes a spiritual master, guess what? They start sounding Eastern. (laughs) You know, we were, as I said earlier, we were were reading through Richard Rohr's book, Everything Belongs on Wednesday Night. And, And he's a Western man. He's an American. He's a Franciscan priest. But when he writes... You know, he sounds Zen, and some of the things that, that he, the way he phrases things, and the, and the analogies and the images that he uses, man, it just makes you, you know, kind of tweak your head like a cocker spaniel and say, what in the world is he talking about? But once even one of us, a Westerner, has experienced this deep connection with God that Jesus is talking about, the only way that we can express it truly is more through Eastern terminology, because it's suited to the describing of things that are not physical, the things that we don't just reduce to moving parts, reduce to a digital number that we can manipulate and turn around and do whatever we're going to do with it. So, once again, it's not that West is bad and East is good, but if we're really going to understand Jesus, if we're really going to understand his message, then we need to be at least become bilingual. We need some dual citizenship here. We need to be able to understand how we can flow from one worldview to another. Now, why is all this important? Did you know that the Quran, Islam's book, calls Jews and Christians the people of the book? Have you ever heard that before? And Jews embrace that. They call themselves people of the book. And largely Protestants call themselves people of the book. They understand that. Not so much Catholics, because Catholics don't see revelation just coming from the pages of the book, but coming from their own church traditions as well. But the idea here is that the adherence of the Abrahamic faith, the faith of Abraham, that was revealed in Scripture, are the people of the book. We take the book very seriously, don't we? That is God's voice speaking to us. But if we're going to take the book seriously, How are we going to know what the message is if it came out of an ancient Eastern worldview and we're trying to interpret it through the filter of our modern Western worldview? See, that's the problem. It doesn't compute. It doesn't work. Who wrote the book? Ancient Easterners, Hebrews, Jews wrote the book. And what we have to understand is that everything that we know about Jesus, we know from the book. Jesus was an Eastern man with an Eastern worldview, teaching an Eastern people with an Eastern worldview through an Eastern language. Now you say, well, but Jesus was God, and so he transcends mere worldview, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely. But he was still communicating to ancient Easterners who had to understand through the language as best they could. So whatever language he used, if he didn't take time to redefine it, they were going to understand it in a way that was typical of their mindset and their worldview. The best we can do To know what Jesus' intent was, what his message really was, was to know what his first hearers would have understood. 
And we can only do that if we can step into their sandals and into their worldview and start to see the world as they saw it. The interesting thing about Christians is we are the only people of the book that switched worldviews early on. In the first hundred years after the crucifixion, the followers of Jesus had transitioned from Jews to Greeks. Greeks are Western. Jews are Eastern. By the 130s, everything, a complete split had been made. First off, in, G- in Paul's letters, we see that there was this fight between whether Gentiles, Greeks, would have to actually follow circumcision, the dietary laws, and all the purity codes, and they decided, no, they didn't have to. So there was one tear. And then the first Jewish-Roman war hit in 66 to 70, and the temple was destroyed, and Jerusalem was laid waste, and the Pharisees fled to the coast to reinvent Judaism. And so there was another break. And by the turn of the century, all sorts of other changes had taken place, including moving the Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. Do you know how devastating that was to the two communities of Gentile and Jewish believers? As soon as the Gentiles started worshiping on Sunday, the first day of the week, they had no more fellowship or kinship with the Jewish followers of Jesus. And then the second Jewish-Roman war hit in 134, and that cut was final. Emperor Hadrian came in and just leveled and sowed the land with salt, built a new city on top of the ruins of Jerusalem, and the Jews were banned from living in what he renamed as Palestine after the Philistines, just to put a finger in the eye of the Jews, their traditional enemy, right? And so by that time, by the 130s, there was a complete split. All of our Jewish roots were lost. We didn't have a connection anymore. And we were left to interpret ancient Eastern books, scriptures, passages, as best we could through a Greek mind, through Greek philosophy, and through Roman law. And so we've missed so much of the message of Jesus because we've missed the worldview from which it came. And I am so grateful that in the last 20 years there are so many more books, so many more voices that are speaking like this and saying, yes, let's restore the Jewish and Hebrew roots of our faith so that we can understand what Jesus was trying to say. So, what is Jesus trying to say? What's he trying to communicate to us? What is it that I'm submitting to you that we have missed? The first thing is he's trying to get us to get a worldview shift going in our own minds and hearts between the legal and the relational. That is so foundational. In Jesus' time in the first century, the Pharisees had turned their religion, which was initially and originally relational, into a complete legal institution, a legal instrument. And Jesus was pounding on that structure, pounding on that institution, trying to get legalities out of the way and remind people that it was about a relationship and not about following rules. It wasn't about just practicing the law to the nth degree and to the letter that made you approved by God. You're already approved by God. You're in a relationship with God. And yet people of the book, by their very name, are always looking to the literal words to try to find revelation. And our consistent slide is back to the legal And so Jesus' words 2,000 years ago are just as relevant to us today. Because even if we say we're saved by grace, the bottom line is, but don't break the law. Don't go against the precepts, or you're still going to hell, no matter how much grace there is. You know, how is it that we're saved by grace, and yet we better toe the line or we're going to hell? 
it's so easy for us to slip back into that legal mindset. And here's Jesus consistently from the pages of Scripture trying to get us to understand it's about a relationship. He's trying to get us to switch from an intellectual mindset to an experiential mindset. If you really analyze Jesus' teaching, he's not giving us highfalutin philosophies. He's not giving us a big theology. He's showing us an experiential way of living life that will make the presence of his Father real to us. He calls that kingdom. But it's all about living your life in a certain way. It's not about thinking about things. Yeah, we've got to use our minds, of course. Yes, we need to have a theology. But if we get lost in that complexity and we never move back through it to the simplicity beyond of just living and breathing and relating and smiling and living life with that childlike wonder and enthusiasm, then we're completely missing what Jesus is about. He's trying to get us from a fear base to a love base. He calls it good news. But we chip away at the good news all the time with all of the above. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, and we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount before here, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is one big worldview shift. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to get us to understand everything that you think you know is keeping you here, limited, in fear, wondering about if you're going to be okay and how all this stuff works. And if you could shift that around, if you could literally take it and turn it around 180 degrees, everything is going to change. Take a look in your bulletins at Matthew 5.20. This is the quintessential verse where Jesus is putting his finger right on it. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What was the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? What was the worldview of the scribes and Pharisees? It was legalism, that you had to follow the law perfectly in order to be approved by God. And they took great pride in that. They saw themselves as the arbiters of this, of this righteousness and this faith that they had concocted out of whole cloth, pretty much. Jesus is saying, no, you need to exceed it, which means you need to move beyond it. You need to change it. It's not that the law no longer exists. He didn't come to abolish, but he came to fulfill. Fulfill how? In relationship, in experience, in love. Take a look at the little chart that I laid out there for you. At Matthew 5 and 6 and 7, look at the topics, look at the issues that Jesus is dealing with. Every single one of them is right at ground level. Every single one of them is stuff that we deal with every single day, and we are dealing with them today. Nothing's really changed in two years except technology. You know that? They had bows and arrows. We got laser-guided missiles, but we're still just people doing the same thing. Look at the topics. Murder, adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, loving the enemy. Matthew 6, almsgiving, prayer, fasting, worry versus trust. Is that not relevant or what? Matthew 7, judging versus discerning, performance versus identification. In each one of these, he's taking the old mindset and contrasting it with a new mindset that will bring us into kingdom. Yeah, you think just because you haven't killed someone, you're okay because you haven't broken the law. But I'm telling you, if even you have an angry thought against another person, you're already guilty. Now, is he equating the angry thought with a physical act of murder? No, of course not. But he's trying to get us to understand it's not legal, it's relational. And as soon as you have that angry thought, as soon as you have bitterness toward another person, the relationship is gone. Nip it in the bud. Stop it now. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Not literally, but cut it off. 
Stop it. Nip it in the bud while it's still small. You think because you haven't slept with another person's wife that you're clear, you got your legal fig leaf on. But I'm telling you, even if you look with lust at another woman, you're already guilty. Why? Because you've compromised a relationship with your spouse. You've already done that. Divorce, oaths, revenge. Each one of these he takes in the same way. Each one of these, he shows them the way that they looked at it and the way that they need to look at it. Loving the enemy is the perfect example. In Jewish culture, you were taught to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which could mean hate in the malicious way we think of it or simply to prefer less. But if you had someone who you were in an adversarial adversarial relationship with, you were counseled to keep the serpent in your heart, keep that bitterness, keep that enmity until they had what? come to ask you forgiveness, paid what they owed you, balanced the scales of justice, you were supposed to keep that bitterness toward that person. That's what they were taught. It's not scriptural, it's cultural. But Jesus says, but I'm going to tell you, love your enemy, love the person that persecutes you. Because if you can do that, if you can love someone who does not deserve your love and care, You're getting the first glimpse of how your Father in Heaven loves you when you don't deserve it either. And the only way we'll know that love is true is when we feel it leaving our own hearts because we can only love because He first loved us. You see, this is what He's trying to get across. When He talks about almsgiving and prayer and fasting, the Pharisees did it with a great show to show everybody how they were reverent, how they were pious. And He says, no, retreat into your corner. So where Matthew 5 is dealing with moving from a legal to a relational worldview, Matthew 6 is moving from an external ritual form to an internal spiritual form, taking all this stuff and internalizing it. The worry part comes from, hey, don't don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear. More external forms, the things that we worry about day to day, because your father will feed you like he feeds the birds in heaven. It's going to work out. Can you get to the place where you can trust, even if your external world is not lining up the way you wanted it to, not showing the outcome that you've been planning for for years? Can you still move through living your life as if God's provision is true? Can you trust that? Moving from external to internal worldview forms. And in Matthew 7, 7, judging versus discerning. Don't judge. Don't set a standard that locks you in like the spirit of the river to a small myopic view of life, but allow ourselves to expand. Don't put standards in place that separate you one from another. Discerning, yes, when you have an experience of someone's untrustworthiness, well, then act accordingly, of course. Common sense applies. But don't put those standards in place before you have the experience. That's divisive. That's judging. That's performance versus identification or from a tribal worldview and mindset to a unified view and mindset. And if tribal sounds ancient to you, sounds aboriginal to you, and you don't think that we're tribal, think again. We are so tribal. Our church has the truth. Your church does not. We're going to heaven. You're going to hell. Our nation, our ball team, whatever it happens to be, Whatever we take security in, whatever group that we identify with in order to find a way to whistle past the graveyard of our fears, that's our tribe. And Jesus is saying, break through that. You can't stay tribal if you're really going to live in kingdom. Because the minute that you enter kingdom, everyone is your brother, sister, neighbor. Even if they're enemy, they're still 
deserving of your love, deserving of your care and your connection. And of course, all of this is trying to get us from that large shift from fear to love because it's only perfect love that casts out the fear. And as long as we're walking around in fear, fear of punishment, then we're going to have to have some sort of obsessive, compulsive, addictive behavior to medicate, to make each day okay. So, if we're still living in a legal mindset, then we're still fearful. We've got a contractual model with our God. We do what we need to do, and then God will do what he's supposed to do. And the fear is the fear of punishment. If we're still living external, ritual ways of expressing our spirituality and our faith, then we're still fearful because we're going to be living an aggrandizing life. We're going to have to show ourselves as approved by God and show ourselves great to the people around us so we can feel okay about ourselves because we're worried about rejection, ultimately. That's what that's all about. To keep trying to do something to be approved, those external forms is because we're afraid of rejection. And if we're tribal, if we're still living within our little tribe, then we're fearful also because we're being adversarial. It's us against them. You know, We have to show ourselves better because other, anything that chips away at the walls of our fortress is just too much for us because we're afraid of error, again, which takes us to the fear of rejection. To experience intimate relationship is to learn that it has nothing to do with following rules nothing to do with obedience, that God's relationship transcends all of that. It just exists. To discover our interior worthiness has nothing to do with performance, nothing to do with that obedience. It's liberating. It opens us up to a new way of looking at life. God's love is something that we can't alter. We can't turn it on. We can't turn it off. And when we've experienced that worthiness inside, then we don't have to try to prove it outside anymore. We can relax. We can become less obnoxious with the people around us. And if we are tribal, we're still fearful because we're looking at that adversary. To realize that we are not loved because we're different, that tribal idea, you know, here's my tribe, here's your tribe. I've judged, I made the distinction. But once we realize that God loves us not because we're different, but because we're the same, that everyone gets exactly the same love, the exact same outpouring no matter what, is also completely freeing. Frees us up to be able to do the same. We don't have to maintain distinctions. We don't have to judge anymore. We don't have to dam up the flow of our resources. We can let them go because there's always going to be something coming from God and it flows through us. All of this is to move from the worldview of fear to love. The hardest thing you'll ever do is change your worldview. Second hardest thing is to realize that you have one. Jesus is calling us from outside of our wells, outside of our worldview, and it's from a really alien place. We don't understand the radical nature of Jesus' message or the worldview from which he is expressing it. But he's calling us out. He's trying to show us another way to live. He's trying to show us kingdom. The price of admission to this kingdom is our worldview. It's our everything. And Jesus is asking us, will you sell everything that you have? Will you sell that worldview? Will you let it go so that you can really follow me? 
to a place that you would never imagine could exist. And so the only question left is, are we willing to pay? Are we willing to let go of the thing that we're clinging to, even if we don't realize we're clinging to it? Let's pray. Father, it is almost impossible for us to comprehend the good things that you have for us. That everything that is good and everything that's right and everything that's light comes from you. It is so hard for us to understand. Help us to stop trying to understand. Help us just to step out and start to experience, to start to live, to go beyond what we think we know in order to just be open to what really is in your spirit and in your presence. You are so all-encompassing that we can't begin to know what that means, how good the good news really is. We'll start with by loving you. We'll start with a little bit of faith and trust that we have and step out. And we trust that you'll be with us every step and you'll continue to support us and let us know that it's safe to continue walking this way with you. Thank you, Father, for everything. Thank you for loving us so that we can love after. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.